You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual You were probably expecting me to rant and rave about the Hobby Lobby decision that came down from the Supreme Court last Tuesday, the day after the Hobby Lobby decision came out. But we had recorded last Tuesday's show in advance because I was out of town. And so you're going to get ranted at today about the Hobby Lobby decision. But you know what? You're not going to get ranted at about the Hobby Lobby decision by me. This is a decision that really disproportionately impacts women. There's been a lot of shit going down in the last few months where women were disproportionately impacted. Um, the, the, the misogynist shooting at uh, the University uh, of California in Santa Barbara, which sparked the Yes All Women campaign, which I ranted and raved about, the 35-foot buffer zone decision from the Supreme Court, all of these uh, state houses controlled by Republicans that are enacting anti-choice legislation, attacks on access to contraception. And I've ranted and ranted and ranted about this shit, as I should, because these are issues that I care about. These are issues that also impact men. But you know what? I think I'm going to turn the rant over to a woman this week. I'm going to get out of the way and let a woman uh, rant and rave about this decision. Uh, I'm just going to hand this opening segment of the show off to someone whose work I respect and admire, and whose activism I respect and admire. Martha Plimpton is an actress. Maybe you've seen her in The Goonies, Running on Empty, Parenthood in the movies. She starred on Broadway and Top Girls and Pal Joey. She also played Virginia Chance on Raising Hope for Years on Fox. That performance earned her one of her two Emmy nominations. She's been nominated three times for Tonys. She's an amazing actress. She's also an amazing activist and co-founder of A is For, a reproductive rights advocacy organization that works to eliminate shame and stigma surrounding abortion. And I figured this week, instead of me ranting about Hobby Lobby, I would invite Martha on at the top of the show and let her do the ranting about the Hobby Lobby decision. So without further delay, Martha Plimpton. So the Hobby Lobby decision uh, basically says that uh, an employer in a closely held corporation, meaning, um, you know, it's a small business, doesn't have to be small, but it's held by a very few people, can decide what types of contraceptives you're allowed to use, or if you're even allowed to have contraceptives at all covered in your insurance plan. So it says that the religion of your employer takes precedence over your individual right to health care. This is a very very disturbing decision because basically what it's saying is that individual women's health care and their rights to use it as they see fit and to use what is the best for them um, in you know accordance with their doctor's uh, suggestions isn't important. What's more important is the religion of your boss. And if your boss doesn't agree with what you want to do medically for yourself, uh, you're not going to get it covered under your insurance plan that you actually pay for through uh, your own compensation package. So your, your boss isn't actually paying for it. This is part of your compensation. So it's a very confusing decision because it's full of contradictions and uh, falsehoods. You know, it, it, it doesn't even address the fact that this religious belief um, on the part of the Green family that runs Hobby Lobby is actually a scientific falsehood. Um, these forms of contraception do not cause abortion. Um, regardless, the the court has decided that's not important. The facts are not relevant, and it doesn't matter because religion trumps individual rights. 
it's impossible to know why we're making such incredible progress on marriage equality, uh, while at the same time we are seeing such extreme and such dramatic rollbacks of women's physical rights. It's very confusing to most of us because in our minds we see physical rights and privacy, the right to privacy, uh, the right to determine what you do with your own body, marry whom you want, uh, have sex with whom you want. Uh, these are all um, things that, that would seem to fall under the same umbrella of personal freedom. Um, for some reason, in our culture, we are refusing to accept the humanity of women. We are assuming, somehow, that having a uterus and a vagina and the ability to get pregnant alters or changes a person's status as a citizen. Now, we used to think this, and some people still do, about homosexuality or about um, being trans, but that's changing now, and that's a good thing. It's not, you know, finished, we're not there yet, but we're making progress. For whatever reason, our culture is not getting as angry about the same kinds of restrictions being placed on women. And I think we need to examine ourselves and figure out why that is. Because the truth is, one in three women in this country will get an abortion at some point in her lifetime. It is a common, normal medical procedure that women all over the world have. If you have a uterus and a vagina and can get pregnant, you probably will, and you may not want to, and you may, uh, in fact, have been forced to against your will. So there are a million unintended consequences in this life. One way uh, that women experience unintended consequences is through pregnancy that they don't want, and they should have the ability to change the terms of that unintended consequence to their benefit. The tremendous contradiction in this Hobby Lobby decision is that it purportedly about reducing abortion, which of course these forms of contraception don't do, they don't cause abortion, but in fact what it's going to do is probably increase the rate of abortion for its employees because there are certain employees who are going to need certain types of contraception or are going to need contraception, period, and they're not going to be able to get it. And yes, when you don't have access to birth control, Big surprise, what a shock, you see a rise in abortion rates. That's just simple math. It's just, it, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure that out. So if you're for uh, reducing abortion and you're against birth control, uh, you don't make sense. You, your brain is not functioning properly. So if you want to hear me sort of speak more at length about these issues, I wrote an essay it's a long read. It's called Freedom Whore, and it's up at our uh, website at as4.org, A-I-S-F-O-R.org. Uh, Freedom Whore is basically uh, my way of calling myself, you know, a, a slut for equality. I believe in every single human being's right uh, to physical autonomy, to uh, the freedom to live their life the way they choose to live it and to do with their own body as they see fit. If that makes me a hooker, if that makes me a whore, as some people would say, um, then so be it. But it means I'm a whore for my freedom. So if I'm a whore for my freedom, I'm also a whore for your freedom. I'm a, I'm a freedom whore for pretty much everybody. I mean, I will 
lay down for equality for pretty much anybody on this earth. Uh, and uh, you should be too. And we should all be going out there and uh, pimping for freedom. Uh, and there are ways we can do that. If you're mad about this ha- Hobby Lobby decision and you're angry about it coming on the heels of this buffered zone decision and you see this trend in um, access to abortion and uh, preventive care being reduced all over the country. And if it's making you mad, there are things you can do. You don't have to just uh, sit at home and fume. You can uh, volunteer to be a clinic escort. Uh, and if there's an abortion clinic in your town, they probably have protesters outside and they're probably harassing women. You can volunteer to escort those women and protect them. Uh, you can also uh, support candidates in your local and state elections who vow to protect your physical rights. That is incredibly important. If we don't elect people into public office who respect our rights, we're going to have to deal with the consequences of that down the line, which means showing up at the polls in prime primaries. A lot of us don't vote in primaries. We need to vote in primaries. That's number two. You can also go on uh, Planned Parenthood's website or NARAL's website or any other website, RH Reality Check, and even the AS4 website to find out what's going on in your area because um, there's stuff going on every day in pretty much every state that has to do with women's physical freedom. And you need to be informed. You need to have these conversations. Come out of the abortion closet if you've had an abortion. Talk about it. Be free and don't be ashamed because you're not alone. There are millions of people just like you who've had to make this decision just like you have. And there is nothing to be ashamed of. Talk about abortion. Talk about your abortion. Don't let anybody make you feel less than because you've had one. Those are just a few things you can do to feel a little bit less powerless in this situation, and I encourage you to do them. And now your calls. Hi, my name is Louie, and I live in Olympia, Washington. I have been dating my boyfriend for the past five years. Um, I'm 20, so we were together for a while in high school. And we were really serious and talking about getting married and stuff. And then uh, about four months ago, we decided to break up uh, because he was moving to D.C. And I was moving back to Olympia from Minnesota. And we were fighting a lot, and it just seemed like we needed to end things for both of us. Now he has a new girlfriend, um, and they seem like they're doing really good. And I have been kind of casually dating. But I still really miss him, and he's a really big part of my life. We still talk a lot. He's going to visit me at some point, and it's just sort of difficult to see how I can have him not be in my life. At what point, after breaking up with somebody who you love like that, do you realize that you should just get back together with them and be with them? Making it sound like true love or something, and maybe it is, I don't know, but... I'm just trying to figure out, like, how long should I wait here before I decide to make an effort to have them in my life more? There's this really funny Louis C.K. bit, uh, if you'll pardon my digressing for a moment, about uh, why divorce is so much better than marriage. Because, you know, it's really easy to be good at divorce. Marriages can go bad. Marriages can fail. But People rarely fail at divorce. How's your divorce going? Oh, my divorce, divorce is great. We're still not together. 
as opposed to how's your marriage going? Oh, we're fighting or this or that. We're separated. We're divorcing. But your divorce is, you're always going to nail your divorce. It sounds like you're failing your divorce. It sounds like you're fucking up your breakup. It's only been four months. You spent five years with this guy from the time you were 15 to 20. You broke up four months ago. Of course you miss him. Of course he was a very important person in your life. Um, you know, one of the things you grieve at the end of a relationship is all those memories that you share. Like that other person is kind of, you know, a backup storage system for memories, for life experiences, uh, you know, and a confirmation that those things actually happened. And that's, uh, you know, something you lose uh, at the end of a breakup, something you grieve, something you mourn. So, of course, you know, and his presence and, you know, not just the importance, not just the memories, but the day-to-day interactions and the day-to-day conversations and support, uh, that kind of emotional intimacy. Yeah, all of that, you will grieve. All of that is gone. But it seems to me that you haven't given this breakup a chance to succeed if at four months you guys are constantly talking to each other, you're both dating new people, but you are actively thinking about getting back together. And that thinking about getting back together stuff is itself normal, kind of a part of the grieving process. Your question though is should you, because you have these feelings, because you miss him so much, be actively trying to get back together? And my answer would be no. I think you need to give the breakup a little more time to succeed. You need to give your divorce, although you weren't legally married, you need to give your divorce a chance. Rarely do you meet people who are still with the folks they were dating when they were 15 years old. That you were 20 and talking about marriage is a really good sign that you two were not mature enough to even be thinking about marriage. People who marry at 20 are almost all invariably divorced by 28. Give it a rest. Date other people. Live a little. Go places. Do things. Fuck other people. He should do the same. And then if you guys are destined to be together, you will be destined to be together at 28, same as at 20. And then you will come back together later with more life experiences. You'll be wiser. You'll be older. And you will be in a place where you can make that kind of commitment from an informed place that this is the person who's right for you because you have comparison shopped a bit. I think the issue here for you, and I've seen this in some other friends' relationships, is that your breakup was a part – you say you were fighting a bit, but it was it sounds otherwise pretty amicable if you guys have stayed in touch. And once you're no longer in a committed relationship, once you're no longer looking at each other and going, you are my boyfriend or you are my girlfriend and that carries with it certain obligations and you are falling short X, Y, and Z, once you no longer have those expectations – it's easier to succeed as a friend than to succeed as a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So the new perspective you have on him is making you forget the ways perhaps that he disappointed you or fell short as your boyfriend or girlfriend because the burden is less and it's freer. And maybe this is then a track to eventually get back together or maybe these are post-breakup rose-colored glasses because you had an amicable breakup and if you recommitted to each other and you got back together with each other and all those expectations kicked back into gear – all the ways in which you guys were not right for each other or fell short or disappointed each other would also come back into play. And then you would be breaking up a second time. So Auntie Dan's advice, give divorce a chance. Give it at least eight more months. Give it at least a year, if not a few years, and then circle back. Hi, Dan. I'm 36 years old. I'm in a committed long-term relationship with a lovely man who's several years older than I am. I'm calling with a question about blowjobs. I've come up against something that I have never seen before in all of my life, and it's kind of freaking me out. 
so uh, we've been together a little bit over a year, and we have a fantastic relationship. Totally in love with this guy. Um, we have a great sex life. We've never had any real issues at all until about a month ago. Um, so one of the things that I enjoy most about sex is blowjobs, and it's kind of an important part of it for me. And so the other, about a month ago, as I said, um, I was going down on him, and all of a sudden he just stopped me and like pulled me up on top of him, and just we just ended up having sex and finished that way, and it was fine. I thought it was a little weird. Um, I didn't think too much of it, so I didn't say anything that time, but it happened a couple more times after that. So finally, on the third time, I said, okay, what's going on? You know, something wrong? You know, do you want to talk about something? And he said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't know if I should tell you, but, you know, when lately when you've been going down on me, I've been having this feeling like I'm about to pee. And it's not like a strong urgency feeling, but it just, you know, bothered him just enough to where he couldn't get into it because he thought it was it might happen. And that was the worst thing he could imagine happening in that moment. So, you know, he ended up going to the doctor because we were worried it might be indicative of some kind of medical condition. And the doctor said she didn't know. She hadn't heard of that before. You know, he had a prostate exam. Everything's fine. But it's still happening. And, you know, we've talked at length about it, and he says that nothing's wrong. And, you know, I mean, emotionally, he doesn't feel like anything's wrong, and he doesn't feel like there's hang-ups that he can't talk about with our sex life, but that feeling just keeps persisting. So I was just wondering if this is something you've ever heard of before. Um, I have never heard of anything like this, and neither has he, and it's really bothering me a lot. He doesn't seem quite as bothered for some reason, but for me, I, I'm feeling very bothered. So I was just wondering if you heard this before um, or if there's any kind of response that you have to that. I thought maybe it was stress-related. Um, we have had a lot happen to us in the year that we've been together, but our relationship is solid. So uh, I don't know why this would crop up so suddenly. You are overthinking this a lot. You are looking for some sort of meaning or symbolism or subconscious something or other in what is just the bundle of nerves and junk and excretory business that is his dick. You know, I always say that if you want to baffle or confound an intelligent design creationist, just point out what a disaster it was when our intelligent designers scrambled together our reproductive organs with our excretory organs. That has caused humanity all sorts of terrible, terrible problems for ever, really, since we were created or evolved. Just Google obstetric fistula, if you don't believe me. Debbie Herbenick, who's a frequent guest expert, a science lady, sex researcher, a fellow at the Kinsey Institute, Indiana University, uh, star prof, uh, has been on the show and talked about something that's called nerve crosstalk. Because all of these nerves that run through your bladder and your genitals, they all are very close together. And there's this phenomenon called crosstalk where some people will feel, you know, when they have a bladder infection pain in their vaginas, where some people feel like they have to pee when they're actually they're just aroused. And it's just all those nerves are also close together. And sometimes there's a little cross wiring going on. So what's happening to his dick? Probably that. When you give him that blowjob where you are sucking his lungs out through his cock, he probably gets really aroused and it begins to draw in and stimulate other nerves that would normally for him communicate, oh, I have to pee and he doesn't want to pee in your mouth. And so he ends the blowjob before the disaster that he may sense is about to happen but isn't. 
So my advice to you would be, A, stop looking for deeper meanings here. This is just a physiological issue. And B, tell him to go ahead and pee. Because I bet he won't, right? Tell, just continue on with the blowjob. Tell him to power past that feeling. Uh, because what's probably happening is a little bit of this nerve crosstalk that Debbie Herbenick has been on the show to talk about. And he's not going to pee. Just some nerve that says bladder, bladder, full, full is getting tweaked as you suck, which you enjoy doing, as you suck his cock like a champ. Some nerve is coming into play that perhaps never came into play for him before with other partners who weren't such enthusiastic cocksuckers. And it's just giving him this false alarm. It's just a false alarm. So power through it. If he doesn't pee, awesome. Then he knows that he can ignore that feeling during a blowjob and it's just – an erratic, erroneous, false alarm. And if he does pee, well, spit it out. It's just a mouthful of piss. After a few beers, it's just so much hot water. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I think I'm having a problem with jealousy. Perhaps self-esteem as well. I've been hanging out with this guy for about two years. The first year, we kind of like, we're seeing other people. Honestly, we're kind of fucking other people. And it came to a point where we were just sort of... Uh, doing it to spite one another. I hooked up with someone and then he would hook up with someone else just to get back at me and it went back and forth for a long time. And to, I think, both of our credits, you know, we both sort of realized that's what was happening and had a conversation about it and decided that we would be, you know, exclusive. But now every time he goes out without me, I, I kind of freak out a little bit. And... I'm just sort of trying to grapple with that. I trust him, honestly, but I don't know how to wrap my head around that feeling, how to make that feeling go away. Because, I mean, it probably never will, but I've never been in a situation like that before where, yeah, you told me you wouldn't sleep with anyone else, but you did before. And, I don't know, it's just been bothering me, and I'd appreciate uh, your point of view on it. So I just listened to your call. Uh, you didn't tell me how old you were or how old he is. Oh, uh, I'm 29. He's 24. Oh, okay. And this has been going on for two years. The, you guys have been together, dating, uh, seeing each other on and off. We, like, we've been hanging out almost every day since, you know, the first three months. So mm-hmm. to my mind, we already were essentially a couple, but we were both kind of like, you know, doing other things on the side through an explicit agreement that that was, that was okay, you know? There was an explicit agreement that that was okay, that we're together, we're a couple, but we're not monogamous, and you can do what you want, and I'll do what I want? Exactly. But then, and that, then there was another explicit agreement to stop doing that. Okay, but I want to get to the bottom of something else first. When did you guys realize that you weren't fucking other people because you necessarily wanted to, but you were just retaliating against each other, that you were one-upping each other and playing games by fucking other people? Yeah, after about a year. So he was sleeping with people he wasn't particularly interested in just to, like, get back at you and vice versa? Yeah, uh, pretty much. It was like one of us would do it for whatever reason, and then the other one would kind of like, I got to do it too. I got to get back at him. Uh, I'm I'm glad you guys were able to identify that that's why you were sleeping with other people and put a stop to it because that's not, that's not a healthy open relationship. That's not joyous monogamish me. That's game playing, and that that's silly. And... 
that that's not very loving and it's not fair to the other guys you're fucking either. You know, you're not being fair to each other. You're not being fair to yourselves. If you're sleeping with people you're not into just to get your own back, but those other guys you're fucking too, you know, we never, we never factor into these conversations about non-monogamy or we rarely do the feelings of other people. If you're using those people as tools to slap your partner with, yep. that's not fair to them either, right? They're going to feel used because they were used. So, Agreed. So just to set that aside, now you guys are monogamous, closed relationship? Yeah, exactly. And the issue is trust. Yep. Have you fucked anybody else since you went closed the relationship? No. Okay. He kind of like made out with the, I mean, they didn't actually uh, fuck anyone else, but that was a bit of a betrayal. He kissed somebody? Yeah. And, and he, did he tell you? How did you find out? He did. He told me about it uh, the next day. Okay. And how did you feel? And he apologized. Um, if I'm being completely honest, it, w- it was a girl and it, it didn't really bother me that much, but sort of like as time went on, it, it's still hanging there a little bit. Why would he make out with a girl a, and why would it bother you if he did? Because it was, it was kind of recently after we made that agreement. And so it was like, well, we just said that we weren't going to, we weren't going to do this. And then um, he did. And, and it, I mean, it, it happens. It just is he by? To some degree, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I guess that's a problem. But you know, you make you decide to go closed, and maybe this was one last little bit of erratic behavior as he nailed down the closed thing. Right? You should be able to forgive yeah. him for that. You should be able to let it go. It's more of a challenge for me than I expected it to be. I think is what my what my problem is right now. It's more of a challenge to be closed. No, to. Uh, to forgive and forget, you know? I mean, like, to, to get over those feelings of jealousy. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way our relationship started. And that, you know, the, the arrangement we had then. Right. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. It's going to take time for you two to really establish trust if when, you know, over that first year when you were sleeping with other people, it wasn't about a genuine desire to be with other people. It wasn't a mutually agreeable kind of, you have your fun, I'll have my fun, and we're together, and that's great. It was... You did that. Well, I'm going to do this. Oh, really? You did that. Well, I'm going to do this. That didn't come from a place of maturity and trust that came from a a really immature and insecure place. So, you know, trust is earned over time and can be obliterated in an instant, but it's earned over time. So, you know, how long have you been closed? About a year. About a year. And in that entire time, there was just this one makeout session with some random girl. Yeah. And he hasn't fucked anybody else, so far as you know. No. I'm, yeah, not to my knowledge. And you haven't fucked anybody else, so far as nope. you know. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe you sleepwalked one night and did a million things. So now it's the act of will. Now it's the you push through these insecurities, and everybody has jealousies, everybody has insecurities. You push through them by saying, you know what? I'm going to tamp this feeling down. Of course I'm jealous sometimes. Of course I'm insecure sometimes. Of course, you know, you didn't call me all weekend, and of course I thought, you know, X could have happened, but I'm going to tamp that down and I'm going to, I'm going to invest my trust in you and you're giving it to him and he can squander it. He can disappear it in an instant if he betrays you. And then he has to earn that trust all over again. Right. But it's sort of one of those nothing ventured, nothing gained situations. But what you're saying to me is, you know, I still have these feelings of jealousy and insecurity. 
And what do I do with those? And are the, is that by itself evidence that he's cheating or evidence that this is an unhealthy relationship? And I'm here to tell you that that is not evidence that he's cheating. And it's not evidence this is an unhealthy relationship that you can't make work. It's just you have to get on top of those feelings of yours and you need to be right. in charge of them and not let them be in charge of you. And he needs to do the same. That makes sense. And I also think as gay men, as a couple, or gay and a bi guy, perhaps, and as a couple, you guys need to have a conversation about what it will mean if one of you slips up. Monogamy is not natural. Monogamy yeah. is difficult. You know, being in love when you make a monogamous commitment is not does not mean you don't want to fuck other people. It means for you, I will refrain from fucking other people. And perhaps in this relationship, it's really good we both refrain from it because when we were fucking other people, that was like a damaging fucking circus. And right. it created a lot of chaos and drama and we were hurting other people and being shitty to each other. So we need to be, at least for the next, into the foreseeable future, strictly monogamous and really build trust and build a, a foundation. And then maybe one day we'll have a three-way and one day we can revisit this issue. But you at least now need to have a conversation about what it would mean if one or the other of you cheated. Do you guys use condoms with each no, other? No, we don't. We've, we've had that fluid-bonded conversation more than once. You need to have that conversation because if you don't use condoms, if you're not on Truveda and you're not using condoms and he cheats and it's understood or it's just assumed that if he cheats and you find out the relationship is over, he has this huge yeah. incentive not to tell you, not to disclose. Right, right. And if he's unsafe in that infidelity, then he could put you at risk for fear of losing you, Right. For fear of yeah. losing the relationship, he will place you at risk of possible HIV infection. So you guys need to, as gay men or men having gay sex, you need to shake hands and agree that if one or the other of you fucks up, that it is not a relationship ender. If it is disclosed yeah. promptly so that you guys can go back to condoms and get tested if the fuck up is unsafe. Okay? Because right. you need to put each other's health and safety first. And that can't happen if the other person, the person who cheated knows that, okay, if I disclose this, it's over. So I'm just going to cross my fingers, not disclose it and hope that I didn't get infected. Yeah, that's a, that's an important conversation to have. That is how so many young gay men get infected, right? Don't do that. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then, which means I'm telling you guys, you guys have to agree to like, if he cheats. So if this thing that you fear could possibly happen actually happens, it's not going to end the relationship. Yeah, that's a, I think, I mean, we have had that, that talk when mm -hmm. we decided to stop using condoms. Mm -hmm. I think though, it'd be a good thing to revisit. Yeah. It's a good thing to revisit every six months or <laughs> every year. It's a good thing to revisit annually <laughs> yeah. and you should still get an occasional STI screening to be on the safe side. Good idea. All right. Good luck. No, thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with not so much a personal question, but more of a human behavior question. Uh, the other day I was reading through you know, what seems like the seemingly endless amount of Facebook posts on, uh, on people getting engaged. And I started thinking about how just kind of archaic the men proposing is, just the action of it, um, at least for hetero couples. And it just seems like such a personal and important commitment to make and one that should be made together instead of marriage being surprised on someone, um, that someone almost always being the woman. And uh, and I get why someone wants to get married and, you know, wear rings and maybe have a party to celebrate, but I'm surprised that after how drastically the meaning of marriage has changed, there's still this expectation for the man to plan this perfect, top-secret, romantic proposal, um, including picking out a perfectly fitted ring that the bride's going to love and, you know, be expected to wear forever. Um, 
that just sounds so strange and something that I guess I haven't heard being questioned ever. And I get that it's fun, but just just seems so odd and, and you know, old school. And so I guess my question is, why do you think men still propose? And in your opinion, should this still be a thing? When you think about a wedding, there is a lot that still happens at people's weddings that references or evokes a time when marriage was a property exchange, when women were things that were given by men to other men. And in that gift exchange, it went from daughter to husband, still property. Um, And you can go to a wedding and you can identify all sorts of moments, symbols, vibrations that evoke that sexist, patriarchal, oppressive history uh, that is – bundled up with marriage in a lot of people's minds. You know, the bride is wearing white because she's a virgin, as very few women are on their wedding days. The father gives the bride away, walks her down the aisle, one man giving this thing, the property, this inanimate object, to another man, right? That moment when it changes from daughter property to wife property. You know, the garter thing, the throwing the bouquet thing. There are a lot of little sexist threads that still run through marriage. But here's the amazing thing. They're all fucking optional, right? You can, if you want, have a wedding where you wear white. Uh, and if that's what your, you know, fiance wants, you can have a wedding where you wear white. Your dad can walk you down the aisle. And you can momentarily inhabit these little princess, patriarchal, oppressive uh, symbols and then jump right the fuck back out of them. And it is also sexist that, you know, and oppressive and weird and anachronistic that so many people expect the man to propose. But that's optional. Women can propose to men. I'm sitting across the table from one of the tech-savvy at-risk youth who proposed to her fiancé. It can go the other way. And most couples that I know where the man officially did the proposing, it was after a long series of conversations where they were both mutually talking about a future together, talking about marriage, where they had agreed that they both wanted to get engaged. And then they just sort of jumped out of their egalitarian, non-sexist, non-patriarchal relationship and performed this little ritual where the man goes down on his knees and proposes that can be viewed as kind of sexist, right? That expectation, the burden on the guy, the woman is the thing to be asked, right? But it's optional. So if I were you, I wouldn't spend that much time worrying about it. I slapped a woman around in Savage Love recently who was wringing her hands because her boyfriend kept talking about proposing and never doing it and she wanted to be married and she couldn't ask him. And I was like, what well, the fuck can't you ask him? Ask him. If, if this is what you want, ask him. You propose. Welcome to the 21st century. Welcome to the era when marriage has been redefined again, not by gay people, but by straight people to be the legal union of two equal individuals, two legally equal individuals. You can propose. He can propose. You can both propose to each other, which seems to be what happens in almost all cases. Two people kind of propose to each other during those conversations about whether they want to get married, when they want to get married, if they want to get married to each other. And then the man runs in at the end and puts a cherry on top of that Sunday and officially makes the proposal. But it doesn't have to be that way. So my advice to you would be not to worry about this so much because most of those men proposing to women proposals that you see out there that seem kind of sexist are the culmination of a long conversation between two equal adults about what they both want and what they both want to do. And then the man performs the little dance at the end, just like the father may walk her, that woman down the aisle at her wedding, not because he views her as property, but because this is how it's done. This is how it's been done. It has patriarchal oppressive echoes, but it has been stripped of patriarchal oppressive 
force of law. And so now it is a gesture, and perhaps it is a sexist gesture, but it isn't one that we should lose a lot of sleep over, in my opinion. Hi, Dan. I am a heterosexual with an asterisk, which I'll explain in a moment, male with a best friend, best friend in the world, who is definitely either gay or bisexual and not out and approaching 40 years old and I think in a terrifying life situation because he won't come out. I don't understand why someone wouldn't come out. I, I'm fully supportive of the, the gay and homosexual lifestyle, sport, gay marriage, everything. The asterisk is, um, I think, look, for myself, I might be hetero flexible for the right guy, but I'm not, it's not something I'm planning. It's just I appreciate good looking people. Uh, I believe that this best friend of mine has uh, kind of admired me and, and uh, I, I don't find it creepy or anything, but I, I don't know if I'm the right person to confront him. I did one time tell him that if he was gay, I, I, I would support any relationship he was in or tried to get into as, as a, you know, my best friend and someone that I love. Um, but as he gets older and still isn't coming out, I don't understand it. And by the way, the reason why I know is because he was showing me some software that he built uh, in his iPad web browser, and the other tabs that he had open were come sporting, huge cock, you know, this, that, like seven tabs open of obviously gay pornography, which I have viewed too. I know what those tabs look like on Pornhub. And so <clears throat> this to me was the final evidence. And, uh, I just want him to have a partner, and it's not going to be me, but I, I need the guy to be loved. Cut everything else. Great job. He owns a big house. He's a wonderful guy and would make a great mate for somebody, but he's just in this scary, like, literally closet, and it's driving me crazy. So am I, should I go shut the fuck up, mind my own business, or go to his house, sit down, and say, ah, come on. Some folks will listen to your call and get in your face and say, why should his closet drive you crazy? This isn't about you, your friend's sexual orientation and who he's out to or whether he comes out that's private, that's personal. And to those people, I would say, you know, the closet is a miserable place. That's why we leave it, right? And so it's perfectly understandable that the caller who cares very much for his best friend doesn't want to see him spend his entire life in misery, in the closet, hiding when he doesn't have to and doesn't need to and isn't hiding very successfully from his best friend if he's leaving gay porn tabs open on his iPad while he shows him software that he's constructed. So I push back hard against people who say that you always have to let somebody come out in their own time and their own pace and it's the private personal decision. Yeah, it's all that and generally you want to err on the side of letting people come out at their own pace and in their own time and their own way and to the folks they're ready to come out to. But there are times when people need a kick in the ass. There are times when people look back and they say, when I accidentally outed myself or I was outed or I was confronted – uh, and forced basically to come out, that was for the best. That was really a turning point in my life. I've heard from people over the years who say that. I was closeted. I was in such deep denial. I was so scared. And then I was outed. Or then I was dragged out by my mother and my siblings who were sick of pretending not to know what they damn well did know. And thank God they did that because otherwise I would still be stuck in the closet. So 
You have erred on the side of being respectful, caller. You have erred on the side of letting him come out on his own time and clearly is not going to happen. I think at this stage, particularly after the porn tabs on the iPad, you go to him and say, I care about you. I support and love uh, gay people. Don't say, you know, I'm supportive of the gay lifestyle because there is no such thing as a specifically gay lifestyle. You know, a couple of lesbians raising kids in a suburb outside of Boston uh, have more in common lifestyle-wise with the straight couple next door raising a couple of kids in the suburb outside of Boston than they do with the leather dykes living in San Francisco with a dungeon in their basement and hosting sex parties. There is no gay lifestyle. There is life and people lead different sorts of lifestyles, gay and straight. So just don't say that and then you'll be totally down with the gays. Go to him and say, I love you. I support you. And I'm worried that you are throwing your life away and you're hiding this part of you for no reason, particularly from me. I think at a certain point, you know, a parent, uh, a sibling has a right to say to a, a closeted, unsuccessfully closeted son, friend, whatever, that there's an insult here that's being directed at me. I love you. You know I love you. I've always been there for you. And by not coming out to me, what you're saying is that you don't feel I can be trusted. You don't feel that my love for you is unconditional and true. Uh, and that hurts me. That's an insult directed at me. And that is about me. You know, your sexuality, that's all about you. But right now, we've reached this tipping point where my feelings are hurt. Go say all of that to him. And give him an out. Give him a chance. Let him... If he wants to nail that closet door shut for whatever reason, that is also his right. So if he says, I am not gay, I, you know, there's a virus, it opened a bunch of windows, wada, wada, wada. If he wants to dig in, you can't literally drag someone out of the closet. You can open the door, you can invite them out, but he has to at some point walk out. But definitely go have a heart to heart with him. Go have a come to Jesus moment with him about his sexuality. You could be the guy that he looks back 10 years later and says that moment where you had that horrible, awkward conversation with me where I denied it at first and and got upset and yelled at you. That was the moment that really transformed my life. And thank you. That's what you might hear from him for 10 years from now. So go do it and ignore the people who tell you that his closet shouldn't drive you crazy. Other people's closets drive me crazy. Hi, Dan. Um, I love your show. I've listened to it for years. And something happened this morning where I actually finally have a reason to call you. So my kids woke up early. They are four and a half and three. And so gave them the iPad to keep them busy. And just like cats stepping on a keyboard, somehow they managed to pull something up uh, that surprised me. It was even accessible on our iPad. Uh, So I came down for breakfast, and they said that they found a very funny video of Mommy showing her bum bum. And so first I thought they were kidding, but then I asked them a little bit more uh, and figured out that they had somehow watched a porno that my husband and I had made together. So my first instinct was to ignore it and kind of laugh it off. Um, because they seemed to think it was funny. They they weren't really asking any questions. Um, but then I didn't want to make it seem too funny because then they would start asking to see it again. Um, honestly, I was just very curious about how much of that porno they saw uh, and whether this would become the impetus that put us into 
sex conversations. Uh, but I didn't want to really make more out of the video than it was, but that I also didn't want it to come up, you know, at daycare or in front of grandparents. Ha, ha, ha. What funny video we saw this morning. So I kind of left it, just trying to ignore it. I had a talk with my older son briefly about how, you know, maybe this is something private for the family and, and we shouldn't talk about it to teachers or grandparents because uh, he kind of knows that being naked is just something we do around the house and, you know, that's something just private for the family. But I really struggled with how to handle this to not make it bigger than it actually was. Uh, so I'd love your advice. Um, I know you have people on your show that usually give very good sort of parenting sex talk advice. Um, and they're really young, so my big hope is to just forget it and it'll never come up again. And I will make sure that it will never, ever pull up on the iPad again. Your two-year-old, your three-year-old, your four-year-old finds your dirty picture, uh, stumbles across your pornography, runs into the living room holding mommy's vibrator because he found it under the bed and doesn't know what it is. Uh, those are the moments when you remind yourself that you don't remember shit from when you were three years old or two years old or four years old. You remember nothing and they're going to remember nothing. So you laugh it off. You take the vibrator away. You wash their hands. You take their vibrator away. So you laugh it off and you take your vibrator away and you wash their hands. And then you find a better place to keep it where the kitties aren't going to find it. You don't have a big talk about mommy's secret adult toys that shouldn't be ever carried into the living room because you're just hammering it into their heads that, ooh, this is this is serious. This is some dirt. This is some this is a button I can press and get a reaction out of mom. So my only criticism of how you handled this was going to the older child who is only what? Four and saying this is a certain private thing like nudity around the house that we do that's for the family. Don't tell grandma. Because now he's got in his head that, wow, this is something I could tell grandma and then I can see what happens. Just like when I pull the tablecloth, I can see what happens. Or I throw pots, I can see what happens. Or I have a tantrum in a grocery store, I can see what happens. And you don't want to write the script for those see what happens moments for your children because they are going to find plenty of them all by themselves. And what's the worst thing that happens? He tells grandma that he saw a movie on your iPad of your bum and your mother's like, what? And you say, mom... Let it go. Leave it alone. My husband and I were goofing around having some fun. It's deleted now so the kids won't see it again. And you laugh it off with your mom and you laugh it off with your kids. That you didn't laugh it off with your four-year-old, you put it in his head to go tell grandma. Hopefully it won't happen. Hopefully he won't think of it. But if it happens again, ha, ha, ha. If it happens when they're 14, that's a problem. They're going to remember that all their lives. But at four, not a problem unless you make it one. Hi, Dan. I am a 48-year-old bisexual male, and about a year ago, I met a guy online. We started a relationship long distance. We met one or two times, and after a few months, as our relationship started to grow and we developed fondness for one another and certainly a physical attraction, he confessed to me that he was into something called zoo. And I have to confess, although I try to be very open-minded and I pat myself on the back a lot and say I'm very liberal and um, non-judgmental, when I discovered what Zoo really was, it concerned me a bit. 
So to break it down quickly, he has sex regularly with horses, dogs, and other small animals and claims the animals enjoy the interaction as much as he does. Evidently, there's a whole underground community of zoo people. Some are exclusively zoo, meaning they won't have sex with any humans, male or female, or in between. They will only have sex with animals. It's really hard for me to get past this. I'm I'm an avid animal lover. Uh, He is as well. I know that seems ironic, but he is not a cruel person. He doesn't hurt these animals. And again, he claims they enjoy it. Well, to make a long story short, we're no longer seeing one another, but I was self-examining and thought, what do I really feel here? And um, how did I walk away from this relationship and how has it changed me in any way? And I think I walked away thinking I am somewhat judgmental. Now, I've listened regularly to your podcast, and I've never heard anyone mention zoo before. And I was wondering, am I being judgmental? Is it okay for adults to engage in sex with animals who really have no choice either way? And what's your opinion? Thank you, Dan. This isn't one I feel I can handle all by myself. So joining me by phone from his automobile, Jesse Baring is a psychologist and author, popular science writer. You can check out his work at Slate and Scientific American. His latest book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, is out now and comes out in paperback in October. And everyone should have read by now. And if you haven't, you should go get it. Uh, Jesse's wonderful book, Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That? And Other Reflections on Being Human. Um, Jesse, thanks so much for jumping on the phone. My pleasure, and I should say that I'm, I'm in a parked automobile, I'm not driving. <laughs> yeah, I don't talk to people in moving cars. Sometimes when I call people for the show, we get them on the phone. The first thing I ask is, are you in a car? And I make them pull over. Yeah. Because um, I don't want to be talking to someone and giving them sex <laughs> advice and then hear them die. Uh, especially, especially about zoophilia. That would be a, sort of an awkward death, wouldn't it? So speaking about zoophilia, you've written about zoophilia. You wrote a, a long piece at Scientific American about zoophilia. Uh, that really kind of blew a lot of people's minds because you argued and you say the science points towards uh, zoophilia, uh, bestiality, having sex with animals, being a sexual orientation. Right. So uh, so those two things are actually different. I mean, bestiality is the act of having sex with an animal. And for, for many years, I mean, if you go back to Kinsey, Kinsey's views was that um, a lot of Especially like teenage boys that live on a farm, for example, would use uh, some livestock uh, as a surrogate for a human partner. You know, they'd rather have sex with a with an actual person, but they couldn't get that, so instead they used a, a sheep or a pig or a, a or a horse or something like that. So it's basically farm animal as fleshlight. Yeah, exactly. You know, they call, when people go to prison and they have, you know, straight men go to prison and they engage in gay sex, that's called situational homosexuality there's nothing else available to them. So there's perhaps situational bestiality. You're on some farm and it's your mom and your that's dad absolutely and the right. cows. Yeah. Absolutely right. And, you know, imagination is a powerful thing. Um, so you can basically create your sexual partner and still have that same physical sensation or stimulus um, uh-huh. that brings one to orgasm. But... Um, since those days of Kinsey, uh, much more recently, in the past decade or so, really, um, scientists have discovered a subset of that population that has sex with animals that are certifiable uh, zoophiles. <laughs> These are people who are genuinely more aroused by other species than they are uh, human beings. So they, so they're not using animals as replacements 
uh, for the, something that they prefer. They're actually looking at the animal as the most desirable sexual partner, more so than a human being. So they've done all these physiological studies of arousal, looking at uh, men getting erections, for instance, to different uh, the photographic stimuli and um, you know, zoophiles both get to see a naked picture of a woman, you know, mm-hmm. no erection, and make a picture of a man, no erection, they see a, a beautiful mare or stallion or something, and they get, you know, raging hard on. Um, so, you know, they're not lying. They really are genuinely aroused by these animals. Okay, so this is a this is a topic that always trips me up because I want to adhere to the standard line on this, that an animal can't consent. You can't say to a chicken, would you like me to fuck you? And the chicken can't say yes, so you shouldn't fuck chickens. Uh, and because that animal can't consent, because the mares can't consent, the horses, the dogs, and this guy says the other small animals, this man he was dating was fucking, which just terrifies me to even think about, um, because they can't consent, I, I want to say not okay. And I'm sitting here, I'm wearing leather shoes, a leather belt, and I'm going to have a chicken salad for lunch. Mm-hmm. And the cow, right. the, the cow whose skin I'm wearing didn't consent, and the chicken in my salad didn't consent. So this line when, you know, animals consent is so terribly important to humans when it comes to fucking animals, but not eating or wearing them. Right. So we don't ask for consent when we say, you know, is it okay if I put you through a nine-inch steel blade um, to cut you up for my for my dinner? Uh, tonight, you know, so it is strange that we are so preoccupied with this issue of consent when it comes to animal abuse and, and sex. I think it strikes at a number of other issues that um, make us queasy and uncomfortable also. And I think one of the big problems, of course, is that it reminds us that we're animals too. Human beings are a type of animal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to say that, you know, these are people who would like to have sex with animals, it's really like to have sex with other animals. And um, so I think it, it sort of makes us very uncomfortable because of that uh, the, that type of um, uh, that type of issue that perhaps reminds us of our mortality or something along those lines. But I should also say that I'm completely sympathetic to this caller's views. Like him, I'm a platonic animal lover, and I think intellectually, it, to think about these things deeply in the sense of like harm and consent, um, and and being open-minded and um, and thoughtful is one thing. But um, to to live in, in intimate terms with a partner that is actually having sex with an animal. Um, I don't think I could do that either, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But but I can still look at the phenomenon objectively. Now, um, is, so the is, question, is the question a, of whether it's okay is different. But is this an issue where you can be so open minded your brain falls out? Um, you know, because yeah, and maybe this is just like I'm so uh, steeped in this cultural taboo and and that line you just talked about between you know saying we are other animals, you know, you're not having sex with animals, you're having sex with other animals, other species. Is that part and parcel with like the cannibalism tattoo? Like we eat, uh, we eat animals, but if we start like yeah. classing ourselves as just other animals, does that blur that line? Is you know the taboo around sex with animals uh, and drawing that line between us and them the same taboo that draws a line between us and animals when it comes to dinner? Right. I mean, it's a biblical prescription, really, um, and. And I think for that reason, a lot of open-minded people, more liberally oriented people, probably want to think about it in more, it, it, it more deeply than the standard line. But um, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a matter of everything, anything goes here. I think we have to look at cases on an individual basis, case by case. I mean, uh, if, if many, many zoophiles actually say that they are the receptive partner in the sexual interaction, um, and if a horse is the one um, who's penetrating you, you know, that sort of erection in the, in the, in the horse is, is sort of a clear sign of consent by, you know, by, by, you know, common sense definition. Um, and, you know, actually that's quite 
quite dangerous, and that's led to several deaths. <laughs> um, so they so they do so like this like this partner like this guy's partner says many of them are animal rights advocates or, or animal welfare um, activists. They see themselves on the side of the animal, and they they think that they're very receptive to the behavioral cues that the animal is emitting um, that that allows them to you know continue or to stop uh, the sexual encounter. Now, the problem that I would have with that is that it's, it's very easy to have your your decision making warped or biased because of sexual arousal. Um, mm-hmm. You want it to be true, um, and you sort of cross those lines um, because you've got that um, the cognitive bias uh, operating. And can the the horse with the erection, who's fucking the guy who's taking his life in his hands, getting fucked by a horse? Can that horse understand what that horse is doing? I mean, does informed consent come into play when you talk about animals? Other animals, pardon me. Uh, I, I mean, I think again, you know, we've got this issue of you know, can animals give consent to sex? And certainly, they have lots of sex. These are not, you know, these are not, you know, uh, animated animals in, in cartoons like Bambi. You know, these are um, these are sexually mature reproductive organisms that do have physiological responses. Um, I find it hard to believe that a horse would be as attracted to a zoophile as a zoophile is attracted to the horse. To be honest. But having said that, um, you know, we've all had awkward moments where dogs are humping our legs and, and, uh, and those, those types of things. And it's simply a matter of, you know, do you let the dog finish uh, um, or do you push it away? You know, and if you let the dog finish, um, is, that, is that abusive? Uh, you know, is it abusive not to push it away? Is it going to have any sort of long-lasting trauma? I mean, if you think about the size of a man's penis... Um, and uh, whether a um, you know an, an enormous horse could even feel being penetrated by a by a human being, um, it's it's pretty unlikely actually, and it certainly isn't going to be very harmful considering what it would be accustomed to. Um, so, you know, long term physical damage I think is negligible. Um, is it going to have any sort of emotional stigma or shame that you know we might experience from um, engaging in a sexual taboo? I don't think so. Uh, so I think a lot of these issues really are human issues, you know, that these reflect our um, deep discomfort with the animalistic aspects of sexuality. Okay, so what's our advice for this guy? He says he's worried he's being judgmental. And people throw that around like being judgmental is always a bad thing. You know, when I see people right. who are willfully, uh, maliciously spreading sexually transmitted infections, I am very judgmental about that shit. So Absolutely. We, yeah. we, have, I, we know, have our judgments so that we can use them. We shouldn't misapply them. We shouldn't judge people who aren't harming anyone or, or you know, harming themselves necessarily. But you should use your judgment. That's what it is there for. But is he being unfairly yeah. judgmental to this zoophile dude? No, I don't think so. I mean, I completely agree with you that, it, you know, sometimes being judgmental – um, it's completely warranted. I, I think that he is. I think that if he were to continue this relationship, he would just continue to run into these types of um, this type of emotional tension between you know wanting to be um, open-minded, intellectual, and liberal, and, and those types of things, and having this gut visceral reaction to being with a man that has sex with dogs and horses. Um, and wait, so it's not, dog, wait, dogs and horses and other small animals. Oh, that's right. That, that's yeah, that what, covers a lot of ground. That freaks me the fuck out. It's that other small animals down from yeah, dogs, which yeah. means what? Cats, squirrels? Where are we going? Oh, ferrets, um, badgers. I don't know. I mean, I guess at some point it gets a little, little bit dangerous. But um, the yeah, and it's it's actually interesting that so many of the zoophiles are having sex with dogs and horses or the occasional dolphin. I saw on the news recently about that. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, these sort of species that have these anthrop- 
anthropo anthropomorphic type of tendencies or qualities to them. Um, they're human-like. So you don't see many people, you know, having a zoophilic orientation exclusively to weasels or um, or to pigeons. Uh, you know, there probably is one or two people people out there in the world that have those types of preferences, but, but mostly it's horses and dogs, which I think tells us something. But for this guy, um, I think, you know, step back, take that sort of intellectual approach that he is already engaging in. I think he's at this sort of safe distance now that he can look at it, um, but still recognize the fact that this is making him personally uh, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that he's going to be able to get over very easily. Um, no matter how you know persuasive the argument is, uh, and I think the argument is persuasive in the sense of you know looking at these on a case by case basis, but that doesn't mean that we have to be a, a part of the whoever is involved with that orientation. We don't have to sort of be uncomfortable in the, in the process. Okay, so that was the fine grained uh, this guy's own personal experience interacting with the zoophile. Now, what about zooming out and looking at the big picture? Like, what should society's uh, reaction to this be? After there was a case here in Enumclaw, Washington, a very famous case. There's a there's a documentary about it called Zoo. Guy got fucked yeah. to death by a horse on video. Um, perforated colon, yeah. Perforated colon and dies, and then you know he's already dead. But the legislature, because Washington was one of those states that didn't have a law against bestiality, uh, wasn't specifically legal. They passed a law making it illegal. Even though this guy had already paid the ultimate penalty, like we couldn't exhume him and put him to death or put him in jail. Right. He was fucking dead. Um, so now that is illegal here. But if this is an orientation and it's not chosen, people aren't choosing to be attracted to animals. And if they're having sex with an animal in such a way where the animal isn't harmed or traumatized – do you think it should be illegal or just squicky as motherfucking hell? Should should people be punished for this? Again, I think it has to, you know, we have to look at these types of things on a case-by-case basis. I do think that any zoo sadist, um, these are people that, you know, are raping animals and they actually take sexual pleasure in, in, and um, causing and torturing animals like the sort of uh, the crush, you know, those crush videos, uh, which are just absolutely horrific. Mm-hmm. And wait, wait for, for for people unfamiliar. What's a crush video? Oh, I, I I have I've actually never seen one. I can't bring myself to even watch it. It's uh, disturbing to me. But um, you know, oftentimes these are Japanese women, girls, um, uh, video clips of you know in high heels stepping on kittens uh, to death or um, right. various other types of small mammals. Uh, I, did, I know the phenomenon's out there. Um, it is a, 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 unfortunately a, a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a crush video, but then there are, of course, cases where you've got, you know, really sadistic people forcing themselves on animals and in animals. So you think that the, the culture should draw a distinction society, the law should draw a distinction between someone raping an animal, harming an animal, or having consensual-ish, non-harming sex with an animal. That, that, that's the case-by-case difference that you think should be taken into account. Yeah, I think that's that's a good that's an accurate analysis of my position. Um, and you know, I think we do have to ask ourselves why we are so preoccupied with this issue of consent when it comes to um, having a sexual encounter with an animal, but not asking for their consent to uh, um, you know, to wear them on our bodies or to or to torture uh, them all their lives in a veal fattening pen or yeah, the way pigs are exactly. raised or we the way chickens are raised. It's strange to me, yeah. It's strange to me that this issue of consent is not harped on um, in those other domains of our interactions with animals or the issues of sadism or the issues of torture. Yes, that yes in the same definitely. way that there can be uh, cruelty free meat that that is produced us except for that final cruel moment where the animal is murdered. 
Um, there can be, you would argue, and perhaps persuasively, there can be cruelty-free interspecies sex. Yeah, you've got, I mean, let's say that you've got some female, an older woman that's a zoophile. She's been attracted to horses all of her life, and she's got an old stallion in her in her barn behind her house out in the country, and um, she's incredibly sensitive to its pain and discomfort and suffering, and she does everything she can to make it, you know, to give it a quality lifestyle. And uh, she just happens to be attracted to the horse, but she does something like, I don't know, she masturbates the horse or something. Um and you know, is it? And she gets sexually satisfied from that. There's gratification from that. The horse seems to, at least in the sense of actually having an orgasm mm-hmm. uh, or ejaculating. Why? You know, why is that seen as immoral? But if we take you know exactly the same behavior, where you've got a man, you know, some uh, a wealthy horse owner that you know operates a stud farm, and he's got somebody uh, inserting an electro uh, ejaculatory rod into the animal's rectum, uh, which is very painful uh, mm-hmm. to, to to get its seed um, for breeding purposes and get the same outcome. Um, but that's painful and harmful. That's perfectly legal and done for commercial reasons. You know, why is that Why is that something that people don't seem to have um, problems with? So, again, I think we, we just need to, to, you know, look at our own uh, interpretations and perspectives uh, I think a little bit more critically and not just sort of immediately assume that this is wrong and immoral, but but look quite closely at the individual cases as uncomfortable and as squeaky as that may be. Jesse Baring, psychologist, author, popular science writer, see his stuff at Slate and Scientific American and get his latest book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, in hardcover now, in paperback in October. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Jesse. Fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old gay male. Uh, I live in North Carolina, born and raised. Um, I'm calling just about, I have a question about um, about how to start dating after, you know, years and years of anonymous sex. Um, I started having, hooking up with guys when I was 15 at the, my gym that I was a member at, in the sauna specifically, with much, much older guys. And did that for, you know, my teenage years. Uh, I got to college and was still having lots of anonymous sex, but I actually started trying to date after I had come out. And um, those relationships were really uh, tumultuous for me, and uh, I never really understood why. I was just always very, very jealous. And if, you know, the sexual connection was there, the emotional connection wasn't, or if the emotional connection was there, then there wasn't a sexual connection. I think I've always had, like, a problem. I've just always kept the two kind of separate or something. So after a string of pretty bad relationships um, and a sex sabbatical, which I've chosen to call it to Europe, where I backpacked for two months and had tons of anonymous sex with lots of guys from different cultures, and I am—I took two years and I was celibate and didn't hook up with anyone at all. I watched a lot of porn, jacked off a lot, and um, and after that, I've recently stopped drinking after being a pretty heavy binge drinker for um, 10 years. Um, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. And I really want to start dating. I love to date and like be sexually active, but I just don't know if I can do that because my, my most recent attempt, I was just like, I was just very jealous. And it, and it ended the way that my other relationships ended. And that was after two years of fucking celibacy. And, um... I just don't understand why I'm in that pattern again. And I really, really want to kind of, I don't have a lot of shame that I know of. I mean, I'm pretty comfortable talking about like my years of 
you know, getting started with like guys just so much older than me and, and anonymously. And, um, I'm pretty open. I'm like, don't care that much about race or body type or age. I've dated, you know, whatever. So sexually I'm pretty open to whatever, but I'm just having trouble navigating, um, and connecting with people really. That's one of the biggest problems and finding people that are, that I can talk to about this because nobody I know or I've ever met got started sexually the way that I did. And it's very confusing because I feel like it just seems so much easier for other people. And I'm just still like such a jealous and petty person a lot of the time when I try to date. Anyways, I love you and I thank you so much. Um, you've helped me a lot. There are three things at play here and they are three separate things. There is the jealousy and controlling shit that's warping and ending your relationship that you need to get a grip on. And you might want to talk to a therapist or a shrink about that at great length. That is separate from your sexual history. That is separate from your sexual debut in the saunas at the gym um, when you were a teenager. And that is separate from the third thing, which is the drinking and the binge drinking. And you've just overcome that. You've stopped drinking. Congratulations. In some ways, you're just getting started. If you were binge drinking from age 16 to 26 uh, and drinking was a huge problem for you and it was, you know, obliterating your judgment and, you know, warping your perspective on yourself and others. Um, in a way, you're just a novice at this sex and dating and relationships thing now that you're having them sober. They're going to feel different. It's going to be different. It's going to take some time for you to grow some interpersonal skills around dating and relationships. Everybody at the outset has a lot of failed relationships. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with the fact that your relationships are tanking right now. You're a young adult. Most young adults relationships tank most tank quickly. Um, if yours are tanking, if you've identified the problem that's tanking your relationships as your jealousy and your controlling behavior and your insecurity, go talk to a shrink about those things. Those are big fucking relationship fuckers. They will end and destroy relationships. People don't want to be in relationship with someone who won't trust them or persecutes them or someone who is constantly prosecuting them for imagined infidelities or even desires perhaps for others. And you need to fix that or it will destroy all relationships you are ever in. And then there's your sexual history, which is something else entirely. Uh, you know, a lot of people, particularly in more homophobic, less accepting parts of the country, a lot of young people do wind up getting involved with older people in quote unquote public sex environments because, Hey, there's no other out gay teenagers. Hey, there are no gay straight student alliances. Hey, there are no gay teen dances or drop in community centers or support. And so many young people in those environments don't have sort of age-appropriate, uh, emotional development-appropriate partners to choose from, and they will go get what can be had, which sometimes means getting sucked off by priests at truck stops or jacking off with creepy old closet cases and saunas at the gym. Give yourself a break. Stop raking yourself over the coals about those early experiences. And rest assured that there are plenty of other guys, particularly in the part of the country where you live, who have similar sexual histories. That you don't know any doesn't mean that they aren't out there. It doesn't mean you haven't dated them. It doesn't mean they're not friends of yours. It's just they're not talking about it. Perhaps they're ashamed of it, and they shouldn't be. Perhaps they're ashamed of it, or perhaps they just know that this is something in the past, and it's not something they need to unpack necessarily or put on the table or confess 
So they leave it alone. And these experiences of yours will only define you so long as you allow them to define you, so long as you are determined, it seems, to understand your relationship problems, even your drinking problem, through the prism of these early sexual experiences. You don't have to regard your relationship problems, the jealousy and controlling thing, that's a separate issue, uh, through this prism, or the drinking necessarily through this prism. This is separate and distinct. And I would encourage you not to pretend it never happened, not to be in denial about it, and not to be ashamed of it, but to keep it in perspective, which means when you're in a new relationship, you don't have to blurt all this out on the first date. Like, oh, I, some, I think I have some problems because I was getting jacked off a lot in saunas when I was 15 years old and 16 years old. You leave it alone. When you get to that stage of a relationship where you really are opening up to each other and sharing more of your sexual history and your sexual makeup and your, your sexual worldview, which may have been shaped by these anonymous experiences, you can disclose that in time when that person knows you better and you're in a place where you trust them and disclosing this information about your history will feel some, like something you're doing in, in a safe environment with somebody who cares about you and is less likely, once they care about you, to judge you too harshly if indeed they will judge you at all for those. So my advice, recognize these as three separate issues. Jealousy, get to a therapist, the drinking, congratulations. And remember, if you've just stopped drinking, binge drinking for 10 years, you're brand new at this sex and relationship thing. You're just getting started. You're learning how to have relationships. So give yourself a break that it's a rocky and steep learning curve. And then there's your sexual history, which you have to allow to be history. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight female living in the Midwest, moved here pretty recently from major West Coast city. And I'm dating this guy, and I'm totally and utterly in love with him, and I know he's in love with me, and we're really great together in a lot of ways. Like, he, his nerd is my nerd on so many levels, but there's a big thing, and a few big things, one of which is that I'm kinky. I am a certified spankophile. I've been to plenty of spanko parties. I'm on fat life, and he is about as vanilla as they come, and He's tried it a few times, but for him, it just kind of squicks him out a bit. And I can be okay with just imagining, but I can't get there unless I at least have some imagination of, of spanking that has to be in the picture. And recently, we are talking about just our stance on on children and child rearing, and he's, he believes in corporal punishment. And I say, for me, spanking is only for the bedroom. It's between two consensual adults, and that's it. And um. I said it would. I don't want to cross any lines to make that something that's outside of the bedroom. I only like it between two consensual adults, and that's it. And I think that kind of weirded him out because he felt like I was saying something. I don't know, like I was a pedophile or something. I, it was just. It was really weird and bizarre, and it made me feel really uncomfortable because it makes me feel like my desire in the bedroom is strange and I've come to terms with it a long time ago and I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. And whenever I'm around my boyfriend, I don't like to feel like I am strange or bizarre or unacceptable. And, and I sometimes feel like my fetish in his eyes is, and I don't know, is that something that I can get around or not? So here's a funny story. Listening to your call reminded me of something that happened to me and Terry when we were becoming parents. When you, you had that conversation with your boyfriend about spanking, and you were like, "Not kids, no, but not in you know, not corporal punishment, but for me, sure." When we were about to become parents, people asked us if we were going to spank, and I would look at them and say, "Yes, but not our son." 
So you say that you you know that your kink spanking, which is a pretty common kink among a, a lot of women, is something that you've accepted and you don't feel shame about. I'm curious why you're dating a guy who doesn't share it or is uh, actively shaming you about it. Which it sounds like that's what he's doing. He's making you feel bad. Yeah. It's, so I met him through a friend, mm-hmm. and I got really close to him before I talked about that because I was kind of trying to like meet him as a human being first. Right. Um, and then when I brought him up, like at first he was, he seemed really GGG, but once we tried it and did it for him, it just, I think kind of squicked him out. Mm -hmm. And and we, and we have to acknowledge that that's legit. You know, for some people who have, you know, some kind of eroticized quote unquote violence is, is a huge turn on for other people stirring any sort of violence into their erotics or into their romantic life or into their sex life squicks them out because they may have other relationships to violence or experiences of violence or just not be able to separate the two, not be able to see them as separate and distinct, like non-consensual violence versus impact play in like the kink world. And And he has a right to his feelings about it. I'm just curious why – you're continuing to date him if this is hugely important to your sense of sexuality, sexual expression, to your sexual pleasure, so important you have to fantasize about it to climax, it would seem like you two are sexually incompatible. Yeah. See, this is the deal with him and I. It's that, okay, I come from a history of having vulvodynia really mm-hmm. badly wow. and never ever being able to have sex with anybody and except having extreme pain. And he's gone to physical therapy. I've gone to sex surrogate. I've done so much work on myself and I've gotten to a place where I can, and he's the first guy who's ever been able to um, get there with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he has like a really special place in my heart. And I think that we've got close in a way that I never got close to somebody. Wow. And it would be hard to just wrap my head around the fact that we are incompatible in this way. And I just wish that he would be open to like being monogamous, you know, or being open to me finding that somewhere else. Because it's really hard because we are so compatible on and, so many other levels. And he's not open and to he's you. The first person. He's not open to you getting your spank on elsewhere. And he's so he grew up in a town of like eight hundred people. He's so conservative about stuff like that. About we're just from different worlds. <laughs> so so you're twenty six. Can I ask how old he is? Thirty six. 36. Okay. So he's not a child. He's and you're not a child either. He's not a young adult. He's not this isn't his first time at the rodeo. You're not his first ex partner. Right. And he's the first person I've had sex with where it's actually been fun and enjoyable for me. Like I've had sex before, but um usually I just I just stuck to kink um mm. because that was easier. Right. Um yeah. And in a way, how awesome for you that if while you were suffering uh, with vulvodynia, that there was this other thing that provided you with a lot of pleasure that, you know, gave you a fulfilling sex life without having to get fucked to, to get there. Mm-hmm. So in a way, yeah. the kink was an awesome uh, an awesome thing for you and a good thing for you. Now, uh, you know, changing course, like part of me, th- you know, I, I get it now. I get it why you're emotionally invested in this guy and why you're sticking around. Makes total sense. As I've said a billion times on the show, and I think I've already said once today on this show, you know, you go to any kink event, you go to IML, you go to Dory Alley, you go to Thunder in the Mountains, you go to straight kink events, queer kink events, and you will meet people who are kinky since the time they were 12, people who are masturbating about being tied up or you know, BDSM since they were little kids. And then you'll meet somebody who fell in love with somebody who was kinky and got there and like something was awakened in them or they learned to like their kink. How long have you been going out with this guy? Uh, since January. Okay. So not too long. Yeah. I think what you need, the, the, the marker you need to put down with him is I, I love you. If you, if you're there yet, if you're at the, I love you swapping stage, 
this is this is hardwired into my you know erotic imagination, my inner life, my erotic life, my and my romantic life, and it, it, you know I can't not do it. I want to do it with you, but I can't not do it. And so either we're going to like learn and grow, and you'll be less squicked out over time, as so many people are when it comes to being with their kinky partners. Or eventually you're going to be so secure in this relationship that it won't seem so threatening to give me permission uh, to do this with someone else, to just do spanking. But those, those, are your, those are your options. Those are the options you have to put on the table for him. But you, you say he does it, but it's bad. He'll do it, but when he does it, it's like I, I almost feel like disgusting for wanting it. And I never feel that way. Like I go to kink parties. Like I'm on that life. Like I have no reservations mm-hmm. about it. And yet when I'm with him – I almost feel like I'd rather just not want it because I feel, and sometimes I feel weird because it's weird for him. Is, is you that, know what is, I mean? Is that something he's giving off or is that you? Is he spanking you in a way that communicates with every SWAT? I hate this. This is gross. I'm squicked out. Or are you just a little self-conscious about being spanked by somebody who didn't arrive wanting to spank you? He, he doesn't want to do the whole like scolding thing. He doesn't want to do anything where he feels like he is higher than me. So like mm-hmm. I I like that that does something for me. I want to be folded. I want to be you know put down. You know that kind of dynamic, the right. submissive dynamic, and and he'll just do it. So it's just kind of like eh, I'm I'm here and I'm doing it. And it's not enough. You know what I mean? Doing it isn't that enough. It's not enough. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, my advice my advice to you then would be to give him more time to say mm-hmm. you know to, to communicate to him that. It's not just the spanking. It's the spanking bundled with this very mild, like very mild form of role play. When it comes to kinks, this is easily realizable. You're, you, know, you don't need a dungeon. You don't need props and costumes. You don't need a goat. You don't need a canoe. All you need is a little <laughs> bit of attitude and a, and a, and a hand, right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to put that out there that, that this is, you know, the kink isn't just the spanking. It's these two things working together. And so we're, you know, I, I would like to work in that direction. And what are your kinks? What do you want to explore? I want to like make your fantasies come true too. But if we can never marry these two things, then eventually I'll need to, I'll need your permission once we're really secure and everything else to, to find those two things married together elsewhere. And mm-hmm. he, he'll need to, as a lot of people do who have kinky partners, regard that sort of as your bowling club. This is a, you know, something that you enjoy doing that he does not. You're on a bowling league. He's not. He, you don't force him to go to the bowling alley where he gets a migraine and hates it. But he doesn't prevent you from going to the bowling alley and, and being on your bowling league and getting your bowl on. And cause, totally. Because he needs to understand that if, if he becomes the reason you can never do this, that the relationship will end. And mm-hmm. people who aren't kinky can't understand that a kink could be so important that a relationship would be sacrificed. But it really is that important, that kind of desire. Like people who don't have kinks will dismiss kinks out of hand because they just don't understand that kink for someone who's kinky is as central as vanilla vaginal intercourse is to somebody who is only into that. Right. And if we went to somebody into vanilla vaginal and said, oh, you're in love with me, all you're going to get all your life is spanked. I'm sorry. I'm not into vanilla vaginal. <laughs> all you're going to get is spanked, honey, all your life. Are you telling me that vaginal intercourse is more important to you than I am? You're really going to leave me because all you get in our relationship is spanked? Vanilla people can't understand that, right? Because yeah. they, their desires are normative. And so their desires are the baseline. And he right. needs to understand that your desire 
for this is the baseline for you is as central and as important to you and your sense of sexual fulfillment as vaginal missionary vanilla is to him. And you're not denying that to him. And it sounds like you've really struggled to be able to provide that to him. You've really overcome a huge medical condition so that you can be fully intimate with him. And he's going to have to struggle to overcome his hangups, his squickiness around spanking to be with you. And it's not too much to ask. Yeah, thank you. That that really helps. Make him listen to the show. I will. <laughs> and then if he's listening here, I'm going to tell him to scold you for airing your dirty laundry in public and then to spank you. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good time. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in reference to podcast 401 about the guy who uh, his wife's sex drive seemed to be pretty low compared to his own and you know, she had some issues with depression. They had a couple of kids. She had a stressful job. Um, but also, I, I think he mentioned that she was overweight. And I think uh, maybe that, that was the key that you missed a little bit for me. In this case, I think as a woman, you know, even if you're five pounds overweight, it's easy to feel like you're not sexy and like your boyfriend or your husband doesn't find you attractive. So I think some of the easiest things he could do would just be to to compliment her in a way that wasn't necessarily leading towards sex, but just some of the old-fashioned things to do when you need to work on your relationship. Maybe they need a little time away from the kids, time for dates, time to do things together as a couple. But if he spends the time to kind of build her up in a romantic and a complimentary way that's not necessarily just for Mm -hmm. him to get towards sex, I think she would probably uh, warm up over time and, and start to be more affectionate in return. Hi, Dan. I have a question about your caller in episode 401 and all the other men like him who complain that their wives say no to sex, refuse to give them a blowjob or a handjob to hold them over, don't like that they watch porn, whatever the case may be. They all seem to be looking for your blessing to get someone to side. I'm all for that if they first tried their best to talk to their wives and tried to find a solution and a way for refuse. But here's what they're not saying, and it pisses me off. Why don't any of these men ever come out and say, I married the wrong woman? Why are they always blaming her for not being sexual enough for them, yet they don't admit to themselves or say to anyone else, well, that's the life I chose for myself when I married her. I knew she was like that, but I married her anyway, and now I'm fucked. By never getting fucked. Can you or one of your complaining male listeners please answer that for me? I really don't get it. Hi, I'm calling in response to the young woman who was curious about going to Burning Man and going to the Orgy Dome and didn't know what to do and all that kind of stuff. Well, okay, I've never been to Burning Man. I'll probably never go to Burning Man. So I've never been to the Orgy Dome. But I can tell this person this, that I once heard on another podcast, the guy that runs the Orgy Dome, whose name is Laszlo, and one of the things that he said was, and this is almost a quote, uh, that if you get handed something to drink that from someone that you uh, don't trust, uh, you don't know, and you drink it, if you wake up in the morning, this is a quote, if you wake up in the morning all sticky, then it was partly your fault. You have no one to blame but yourself. So <laughs> he's kind of like basically uh, on one hand sort of legitimizing the notion that you might simply be raped at Burning Man in the Orgy Dome um, if you happen to drink something that, that might be laced. It 
was a very extreme comment, but uh, it didn't give me any confidence in the orgy dome or its leader whatsoever. So I throw that out there to the young lady, and that's all I have to say about that. And we're going to leave it there. Thanks, as always, to all of you Magnum subscribers. We appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at Savage Lovecast. To record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jesse Baring on Twitter at Jesse Baring. And a huge thank you to Martha Plimpton. Follow her on Twitter at Martha Plimpton if you want entertaining and energizing and sometimes aggravating Twitter updates about all sorts of issues. Martha is very entertaining and very enraging in all the right ways. Very empowering rage, Martha inspires. And check out aisfor.org and think about getting involved with that organization or another organization or any organization working to defend women's rights to reach. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risky Van Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.